So I'm a huge proponent of craftsmanship. I think most people don't think enough about craft. They think about the result of craft, getting big, being known, being admired, but they don't think enough about putting in the work that makes you really good at that thing. So that when opportunity strikes, when luck strikes, when people do come upon your work, that they uh, are rewarded with amazing content that feels like it wasn't a waste of time. In this episode, I talked to Wes Ko. She is the co-founder of a new startup called Maven, which is all about cohort-based courses. Uh, before that, she's had a bunch of amazing things working with uh, a lot of different creators, but probably the one you would have heard of the most is uh, co-founding Alt-MBA with Seth Godin. So Wes is fantastic at uh, course design. Uh, we talk about building uh, an audience on Twitter, You know, some overlap why both she and I are doing that. Um, we talk about Oh, actually, my favorite in this whole thing. It's towards the end, but we talk about something called the state change method, uh, which is something that I use to make my presentations, particularly like a long Zoom presentation, way more interesting. She's reduced it to a framework. I adopted that framework and I love it. Um, anyway, we talk about a lot of things, but probably the biggest takeaways would be uh, around great course design, cohort-based courses, what they are, why you should do it, growing on Twitter, a lot of other fun things. So Wes is so thoughtful and I think you'll love this episode. Wes, welcome to the show. Hey, Nathan. So uh, let's just dive right in. I want to talk about your Twitter growth. Uh, this is something that uh, I'm interested in at the moment of like, okay, I've been you know active on Twitter for you know a decade or more, um, working on uh, growing an audience like kind of passively. You know, I, I tweet things. Sometimes I think about it and like actually write a thread. Uh, but then the last I don't know month and a half, two months, uh, inspired by you and and uh, plenty of other people. Um, I'm like, okay, I'm actually going to get serious about this. And I think I've added, gone from like 40,000 followers to almost 60,000 in the last two months of like working on it. Amazing. You're pushing, you're pushing 90,000 followers now. Uh, I'm curious what, um, one, what made you dive in on Twitter? And then two, let's talk strategy and what you're actually doing. Yeah. Um, so I've been on Twitter, I want to say for 10 years or so. Yep. And the first nine years I had zero to a thousand followers. <laughs> so all of the growth that I've seen has been in the last seven months or so, wow. eight months, maybe a year. A year ago is when I, when I started growing my following. The last seven months is when things really started to take off. So um, being obscure on Twitter is something I'm very, very used to. Yeah. So I think one thing that's been um, really exciting and validating is that a lot of the threads that I'm writing I'm writing about one thread per week, um, are based on essays that I wrote a couple of years ago. So last year, 2021, um, I, no, wait, in 2020, I wrote 43 essays. Oh, and wow. in 2021, I wrote five. So there was a huge drop in the number of essays because before that I was a, a creator consultant. I was a freelancer, kind of, you know, working with different clients, solopreneur. Um, and then last year I started Maven and kind of shifted from being a content creator into being um, being an operator. So definitely want to dive into that because I, I think that um, there's a unique challenge with being an operator and creating co content at the same time that if you are a, um, a pure creator, it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, it's it's been really great because I thank Past Wes for writing a lot of these essays and thinking about um, a bunch of 
a bunch of frameworks, ideas, topics that, that you know, I'd been thinking about for, for a very long time um, before actually writing them down. So I think if I had to create content on a weekly basis now, it would be a lot harder because on a daily basis, I'm in pure operator mode. And for me, it's two sides of my brain, like content creator mode versus operator mode. But yeah, I think with, with thread writing, it's something that, that's been a recent endeavor. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot about the craft involved in anything. So I'm a huge proponent of craftsmanship. I think most people don't think enough about craft. They think about the results of craft, getting big, being known, being admired, but they don't think enough about putting in the work that makes you really good at that thing. So that when opportunity strikes, when luck strikes, when people do come upon your work, that they uh, are rewarded with amazing content that feels like um, it wasn't a waste of time. So with the craftsmanship aspect, I am blown away by the skill required to write great threads and, and excited by it and fascinated by it. You know, before for, I've been writing my, my newsletter and blog since 2010, so 11, 12 years now. So the long form essay was something that I was really used to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain structure, right? There's, there's certain constraints within, within um, articles and blog posts. But threads of a completely different, they're a different medium with different constraints um, and there's a different style. And so even with translating um, articles that I've written that have been popular, that I know, you know, performed well and, and resonated with people, even translating articles into tweet threads, it's not a one for one copy paste. There's a reimagining of the content to distill it into, you know, the key points and capture the spirit of whatever the article is about. Um, I found if you just try to copy and paste from one medium to another, it it doesn't work. Like you lose the magic of of whatever was in that original format. And it's kind of like this with um, cohort-based courses and MOOCs. So massive open online courses, evergreen courses on LinkedIn learning, Udemy, for example. These are basically, you know, a series of videos. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I I think there's similarities there too, because when you are, uh, when you have a MOOC, um, you are steps ahead from someone else who has no content at all. But translating a LinkedIn learning course or a teachable course that's static into a core-based course is still a process. There's still a transformation that happens. And I liken it to turning a Broadway play into a feature film or a feature film into a Broadway play, right? It's like, oh, you have the script, you have you know the characters, you have dialogue, you have the setting and scene. but Certain things work in live theater that don't work on the big screen. And then certain things work on the big screen that, that don't translate well to theater and aren't practical for theater. So I feel like translating from one medium to another, um, that's been interesting to see, see the shift that needs to happen and kind of learning the new craft of that new medium. So that's something that's really fascinating to me right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about that. Taking the same message and putting it in a very different format on, you know, on, on a different medium. I think a lot of people... Uh, who are writing for Twitter, you know, are doing the same thing, right? Like uh, I'm doing the same thing you are of going back through, you know, five, 10 years of blog posts and going, okay, what are the things that I want to retell? Because uh, I'm also in the same position of you of being a, a business operator rather than a full-time creator. I'm like a, a 10% of my time, uh, you know, actively creating. So what, is there an example that comes to mind of, a, you know, a blog post or one of, one of these essays that then you you had to 
you know, the essence of it is still the same, but you had to, you know, change the hook or reformat it so that it actually, you know, works well on the medium of Twitter, you know, versus the blog post. Yeah, literally every single thread so far. So all the, all, every single thread that I've done, I've had to reformat and restructure. And I think in the beginning, I thought I wouldn't have to. So that's why I'm, I'm mentioning it at all as, you know, a, a learning and an insight is because at first I thought, well, I've already put so much effort into creating this high quality, long form essay that I feel really good about. Um, and, you know, why can't I just copy and paste into a thread format? And it was, it was through trying it and it not working that made me realize that I did need to, to um, rethink the content. And that, you know, having some content to work on and, and um, solid thinking behind an idea is one of the hardest parts. So, you know, I had that to go off of, but still needing to think about um, the unique constraints within Twitter and the flow and, you know, being a lot more direct, I think right. is, is one thing that you need to be on Twitter versus articles and blog posts where there's a little bit more, there's more character count and word count to build your case and lead into your point. Whereas with Twitter, People are reading this medium when they're scrolling, they're distracted, they're probably watching TV or checking them out at the same time. Um, there's not as much room for subtlety. So being more direct with the point um, tends to work better um, in my experience. But you know, I think I was talking to uh, Sonal from A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, she's their editor-in-chief of many years of, of their uh, publication. Um, and we were catching up in San Francisco um, last summer she is a content genius. She's one of those people where you talk to her and you are just shocked at how um, high quality her thinking is, how brilliant she is, um, how good at her craft she is, how competent she is. Um, I say competent as the highest form of a compliment, by the way. I know that, yeah. you know, in society, some people think like competence is baseline. I actually think 90% of people are incompetent and disappointing most <laughs> yeah. of the time. So to call someone competent is like, a huge compliment. So I think Sonal is just incredibly competent, competent, incredibly good at what she does. And anyway, she was saying, and she's been doing content for like, you know, 25 years. And she was saying that people always think they can reuse content and you never can. Like, just stop trying. Like, everyone wants to repurpose the shit out of their content and right. like copy and paste from one to another. And it just doesn't work, you know? And I think the nuance of it is that, that it can work, but it requires thoughtfulness and reconfiguring, which is not what most people think of when they think of just like repurposing things. So that's something that I continue to see. Um, but I think that learning the nuances of a medium and thinking about what you need to change is, is part of the exciting and yet um, excruciating part of the creative process. So like, yeah. like literally on, on you know, the day before I, I am about to publish a thread, you know, usually something still doesn't feel right. And I can't put my finger on why. So that's, a, I'm sure you felt this before. It's a super uncomfortable, like really disconcerting feeling where you're like, I know this is not great. Like it's passable. It's not embarrassing, but it's mm -hmm. not great. Um, so I could publish it or I could make it better and make it something that I'm really, really proud of and really proud to point people to. I'm kind of obsessive. So I hate doing things that I'm not super proud of. Um, I just feel like that's going to be the one thing that everyone ends up looking at and then judging me forever by. Um, so, so usually I will want to think about how do I make this better? Um, and it's partially driven by my 
intellectual um, curiosity or obsession about trying to figure out the problem. I don't like knowing that there is something that I know is off, but I can't figure out why. So I'll usually try to figure out why. Um, and you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a thread that did pretty well. It uh, got, I think, thirteen thousand likes, um, which is you know a lot for me. Yep. And you know, the day before, it didn't really feel right. And the morning of, I changed the hook in a completely different direction. I had four to five hooks before that I had drafted that um, were of a certain angle. And then the day of, I changed it to a completely different angle, um, which reframed the entire thing and required me to kind of make a couple changes um, elsewhere in the thread. Uh, and that happens a lot. Like I'll, I'll end up um, shifting tweets that were at the very bottom as recap tweets all the way to the top because it's more direct and it kind of hits the point. And sometimes, you know, it takes a while to to for you to even as a writer understand what you're trying to say and so sometimes right. the stuff at the bottom i move straight to the top sometimes i'll realize that i've i've overwritten um so i'm i'm cognizant of that too i don't like beating a dead horse and feeling like i've repeated this point and this insight like a billion times a billion is usually like three times in, in a thread so <laughs> yeah. i will remove like one or two of them to just tighten it and not feel like i'm beating my audience over the head i always want to respect the intelligence of my reader so I don't want to assume that they are dumb and need to be told something 50 times. Like I want to keep it moving, keep, keep up a good rhythm. So I will often combine or delete tweets that I feel like um, are, are belaboring a point. Um, and then other times, I think the, the hardest part is thinking about the logic of the idea itself. I think a lot of times what I call limbo writing, like writing that's you know neither super good or super bad. Like if it's obviously good, you would ship it. If it's obviously bad, you wouldn't. But I think uh, most of the time writing is limbo writing where you're like, okay, like there's something here, you know, and like, how do I, is it possible to make it better? And how do I make it better? Right. So like when writing is in limbo writing, I find that, um, this, there are usually two main areas that that could be wrong. Um, one is the idea itself and the thinking itself is unclear. And then two is the expression and the execution of that idea is is not clear. So I feel like most of the time people think it's bucket two, where they're trying to polish up the writing, make it snazzier, um, when really the problem is that the idea itself doesn't hold water. It's not rigorous enough. The thinking behind it doesn't really flow, um, or it kind of like makes sense on the surface, but upon further questioning or like looking a little deeper, it's like it's too surface level. So that's the harder problem to solve for me. And so when I, when I realize that, okay, this is a logic problem. This is not a writing expression problem. It's, it's, it's a logic problem. Um, I will think about what it, what is the logic of what I'm trying to say here and how do I convince my audience that this is a great framework or that this is useful, or this is something that they should try. I think a lot about how do I convince my audience? How do I prove to them that they should try this idea or keep reading or whatever? Um, and I feel like holding that onus of responsibility as a writer is great because you don't assume that people will just care. You don't assume that they will just understand. You really um, realize that you have to reduce the cognitive load, make it easier, make it intuitive, help them viscerally understand what you're saying. Um, so, yeah. So I feel like you know, when I think about limber writing, I usually try to identify: is it is it a thinking problem or is it a, a craft of writing problem? When you're when you think of something as a like a thinking and a logic problem. Cause that resonates with me. I have these ideas that I've thought about for a long time and I'm like, Oh, let me write it. And then it, it doesn't quite come together. 
do you, do you deliberately put on a different hat of like trying to view it as a skeptic or trying to, you know, see how it's going to be received? Cause something that I find is that I often like ask a friend to review it or be like, Hey, and they're putting on the like supportive, you know, uh, I'm Nathan's friend, his cheerleader, all of that. Right. And they put on that hat and they're like, no, it's, it's great content. You know, do you have like sort of different, uh, either friends to send it to who are going to be very skeptical and, and push you on it of like pointing out the flaws in your logic? Um, or like, do you have a way of getting yourself into that mindset? Yeah. So there's a couple things that I do. One is if I send it to a friend, I will point out that I think that there are logical gaps or that there are certain parts that are not compelling enough. So I might say, you know, I don't think I'm illustrating the problem enough in the beginning for the solution and payoff to feel exciting. Like there's no, there's no drama because I haven't made the point about why this is a problem that's worth solving. Um, and so I'll say like, okay, in the beginning, the first, you know, th- there's a hook. And then the first two tweets, I want to do that better. But like, I feel like the way I'm doing it now isn't nailing it. So I will kind of guide them on the kind of help that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I think the other thing is um, setting the expectation that I don't want positive feedback per se. Like I already know that it's decent. You know, yeah. but I, I just don't think it's good enough. So like, tell me how to make it better or which parts for you are falling flat because I already think it's falling flat. Like I'm not looking for encouragement. There are some times when I am looking for encouragement. So, you know, like I can <laughs> yes, clarify when you're looking, you know, when you're looking for certain kinds of advice is super important. The worst is, and, and actually as an advice giver, I also clarify with people before jumping into advice because I remember once a friend asked me for um, advice about his this business idea. And I tore it to pieces. I was like, this basically like this idea sucks for all of these reasons, which are very obvious to me. And, you know, after this whole like diatribe where I thought he'd be like, oh my God, Wes, like, thank you. This is awesome. He was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, like I've pretty much started already and like invested a bunch of money in it already. And, and I was like, oh my God. Oh no. Like I am like, like a jerk. Like I felt terrible. The right? Like pressure in that case. It was terrible. Like I really should have checked what stage was he in, in this idea? Like, are you, are you shipping this thread, um, in 30 minutes and you want a little bit of something that'll make it a little stronger, or is there not a timeline and you can rip out the foundation and reimagine it? Right. So like as an advice giver, I try to ask that up front to avoid, um, you know, messiness on all sides. So yeah. So if I'm asking someone for advice, I will say like, I am shipping this in an hour, like, can you take a quick look, right? Or like, I feel like this needs to be reworked. So help me rework it and think about what direction we need to rework it in. Um, so I find that uh, to be a good way to get what you need from other people. Yeah, I mean, being specific about that is so important. Because uh, even if you said like, hey, I'm feeling really down about my creative work right now, will you just tell me that this is actually good? Like that is totally mm-hmm. a fine thing to ask of a friend. And they'd be like, yeah, here's what I love about it. And, you know, and they might just leave it at that. Or you could say, tell me what you like about it. And then also I do want to improve it, you know, right. So you can be specific. Yes. About yeah. I'll ask about. people to highlight the parts that they like the most. So mm-hmm. that helps me not accidentally delete those parts. Because if you don't know the parts that people like, you might, you might think that, you know, it's just kind of part of all the other content. Um, so I like knowing that so I don't accidentally get rid of it. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to talk about the, like why Twitter, 
um, and what's come from it for you, right? Because there, there's a lot of startup operators who, you know, are they might read Twitter in their free time, but they're like, that's not worth my time. That's not interesting. That's not, you know, I'm going to be heads down building my company rather than, uh, you know, building an audience and talking about the company. What made you decide to go all in and say, hey, this is worth it to, um, uh, actually, I made an assumption that you went all in, uh, but what made you decide to put the effort into growing Twitter? Um, and how does it tie back to growing Maven? Yeah, I'd say that content creation for me right now is about 2% of my time. Okay. So 98% is focused on, on being an operator. And for the first 13, 14 years of my career, I did not invest in an audience. So this whole um, investing in an audience thing is, is fairly new and is a shift for me uh, as someone who is you know, always focused on being an operator. Um, and I think the, the shift came because my co-founder, Gagan Biani, who was co-founder of Udemy, um, had invested in growing his audience. And it was the way that we found our technical co-founder, Shreyan Spinsali, who um, was the first engineer, first employee at Venmo and helped build up the engineering team uh, and, and, and grow the business. And he saw one of Gagan's suites and reached out and, and wanted to, to chat with us. Uh, and we ended up bringing him on you know, early on as a, as a co-founder. Um, and we've also gotten a ton of amazing candidates from people who saw us on Twitter. Um, and so that for me was this, this light bulb moment where you know, before I had kind of seen Twitter as this um, separate ancillary vestigial appendage, like tail that humans don't need anymore, kind of like this like side thing, you know, it's like serious operators operate. And then like, there's a side thing that you could do called Twitter and like growing your audience and stuff that felt like a distraction, but seeing the, the traction, um, that, that Gogan was able to help generate for our business through Twitter, both on the hiring and, um, team building side and for attracting creators and instructors to come join the platform and to attract students to come take courses on Maven's platform really helped me see the power of a distribution channel and the power of um, a platform where you could share more stories about what you're learning, about your company's mission, about the kind of people that you want to work with, uh, about ideas that you have. You know, And for me, I had been writing on my blog and newsletter for a decade before that. So I kind of, you know, I, I, I'd always loved sharing what I was learning and sharing my best frameworks, sharing the, the different um, uh, lessons that I had that I thought would help other people that you know, I'd kind of proven in my own life. And sharing on Twitter felt like an extension of that. It felt like, okay, I've, I've already been doing this. Um, and how can I share a lot of these same ideas in, in this new channel where there's a lot more interaction and a lot more buzz? Um, I hadn't spent a lot of time growing my newsletter either for that. So it was kind of like, I'd send out a bunch of emails, you know, but wouldn't really hear anything back. You know, like I had, a, you know, my usual people who would reply to everything and stuff, but it, it, it always felt a little bit quieter. Whereas on Twitter, I think that the exciting thing is that you get real time feedback on, you know, what people are thinking, the questions that they have, things that you could have explained better because, you know, people, people misinterpreted it and you get a, a real sense of what the market is reacting to. Um, and I think that, you know, in some ways people can say that, you know, at the worst, it can be pandering to an audience and just like, you know, doing things for clicks, right? So that's, I think that's the worst side of seeing what the market reacts to. But I think the best side of that and a, a really real 
upside of understanding how the market reacts is that it makes you as a writer, as a thinker, as an operator, as a founder, sharper. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you are starting business, if you are a content creator, um, if you write a newsletter, if you're an influencer, whatever, anyone who has a business or, or has an audience is serving that audience, serving those customers. So if it's radio silence, every time you put stuff out, that is data that you should think about, you know, and I, as a founder, as an operator and as a creator want to know what are people reacting to? And it keeps me honest, um, knowing that I am, I will get market data on what I put out. And, uh, and I think it, it continually, um, levels of the bar of the work that I, that I put out, because I know that, that I will get data on, you know, are people is this resonating with people? Are they finding it boring? Do they find this too generic? Is it too, you know, is it drowning in a sea of sameness with everyone else's point of view? Or is it spiky? Is it offering value? Right. Um, and so I think there's a there's a lot to be gained in putting yourself closer to reality and to how the market reacts. So right. I I think a lot about not being delusional. I don't want to be delusional and think something is a great idea if the minute someone else sees it, they would not agree. Right. I'd rather know that maybe this isn't a great idea and then I can edit, iterate, change it. Um, and so by being able to test ideas out on Twitter, it's this amazing way to interact with a bunch of people who share the same interests, who are in the same community um, and can give you that that feedback. Yeah. Uh, what you're talking about on the the benefits of growing the audience really resonates because, um, you know, as you are a startup founder and you're trying to figure out what do I spend my time on, right? Because you can spend your time on an infinite number of things. And you read the articles, right? What does a CEO do? What is, you know, this type of executive, what does that job look like? And a lot of it comes back to recruiting, right? Like your job is to build the team. And so on one hand, you know, you're like, oh, I'm heads down recruiting, trying to meet people, all of that. And this Twitter thing, like, us, oh, just a, a side thing. Until you realize that, wait, Twitter is driving the most recruiting, you know, where you oh, yeah. amplify everything. And the candidates that you're talking to have read your tweets and your threads and you know articles on your site or listen to podcast episodes and learned more about your company's mission and the right. challenges that the juicy challenges that you're trying to solve right and so it is it's pretty interesting because it, at first it seemed like this side you know thing that it's like how helpful is this really um but but since growing my audience i've had so many inbound emails inbound dms from candidates mm -hmm. who were interested and who you know heard me talk about core based courses on a podcast or read a certain article on rigorous thinking or spiky point of view and and loved the depth of it and wanted to join a team where people are thoughtful about their ideas and and have high standards for work right it's like i think i think the other piece of of all this is when you have a platform you have so many more opportunities to share your thought process your thinking your vision um your approach to problem solving your excitement about your industry and your field, you know, like if you, if, if no one were listening, it's like a tree kind of falling in the forest. Right. But if you are building that audience and building that community, um, you have a chance to nerd out with people who care about those same things. And I really think that one of the, the most exciting parts about, you know, working in, in today's era is being able to find people that you can nerd out with. You know, like these these long tail communities, you know, whether you're a course creator or a newsletter writer, or if you're an operator and you're looking for a certain kind of person, like I'm looking for pretty specific types of operators to join Maven because we have a, mm -hmm. a pretty specific culture. Um, and Twitter is a great way to share more about that. 
Yeah. When you also, you talk about the, like sort of the trifecta of the content out there to recruit talent, which you need, but then you also need to recruit um, the creators who are going to make the courses, right? And, and ConvertKit, we have the same thing, right? We need the creators to switch over their uh, audiences onto ConvertKit, you know, so that they'll then use to sell the courses or whatever else. And then the third piece of being able to create the fans and like bring the fans. And so if you're talking to, you know, say in the very early days, right, you're talking to someone, they're like, why should I launch my course on Maven? You know, or they're like, if they're in that, you have all the feature-based stuff, you have all the course design and everything else, but then you can just say like, hey, and we'll help promote it too, right? You can um, bring in some of that to get, you know, all three pieces, the people building the platform, the people, uh, you know, creating and selling the content on it, and then the consumers as well. I don't think that every business can quite get to that trifecta, but you and I both with our businesses can get to that. And so it's like, I, I mean, that's the answer to the question of like, why build uh, build an audience on Twitter is because I think we both came to that same conclusion was like, okay, this is a high leverage use of time. Mm-hmm. I think something else, as you were saying that, that I just thought of is I think too many businesses try to waste customers' time. And as we're all, you know, even business owners are um, consumers themselves, right? Like we get pitch emails, we get added on lists and spammed with, with emails, oh, yes. right? And a bunch of inbound stuff. And I think not enough founders and operators, creators think about how do you add value before you ask for something? So Twitter is another great way to add value. You know, when, when I do threads, I'm not spending 90% of time selling people. I am spending 90 to 95% of my time sharing useful ideas that have helped me in my life and in my work um, that I think could be useful for my audience. And then at the bottom, the last tweet, I might drive to the Maven Course Accelerator, which is a three-week free course that I teach on Maven, teaching you how to build your own course. Um, or I might, I might link to uh, my, my website or Maven site or whatever, or Maven's roles for hiring. I'm linking there a lot now. So I think like that idea of how do you add value and um, not waste people's time and not just spam people and like add more noise because there's so much noise. Um, I think that's a really good internal barometer and just bar of like, like, am I adding a lot of value here? And if I'm not, how can I add more value before I hit publish? Yeah. I love that. Okay, let's dive into cohort-based courses and and then Maven as a whole, right? Um, but I think for someone, it might be easier to start with what cohort-based courses are and how they're different um, than you know what someone might traditionally do of like, look, I've got my camera, my mic, let me record for half a day, uh, upload it to, I don't know, pick your random course platform, Udemy or wherever, um, and then I'll sell that for 50 bucks and move on, right? A cohort-based course is entirely different. And I'd love for you to explain uh, the different style, and then like the focus on outcomes. If you look at the past 10 years of online learning, the dominant format for courses were MOOCs, massive open online courses. So these are on-demand evergreen courses that you find on Udemy, LinkedIn Learning, Masterclass, Teachable. So they're basically a bunch of video files, a bunch of recordings that you as a student can watch on your own time. So there's not a lot of community. There's not a lot of interaction. It's a solo activity. It's completely asynchronous. So on the flip side, court-based courses are completely different. They have a set start and end date. So the course might be three days, one week, three weeks, six weeks, but there's a set period of time when you're going through that course. 
and there are a set number of students that you are learning with, usually people who are like-minded and, uh, and really want to be there. And it's much more community-driven. So instead of it being this passive content consumption mode, you are actively learning and actively producing content yourself. So you know, let's say you are taking a LinkedIn learning course on design. You might watch a bunch of videos about um, composition, typography, balance, and you know, you're just kind of watching these videos yourself. But if you were taking a cohort-based course on design, you might learn some of these concepts. And the instructor would say, you know, all right, we're going to say five minutes, you're going to design a flyer and you're going to incorporate some of these elements. And then at the end of the five minutes, we're all going to share screen or hold up our design, you know, in front of the camera and check out each other's designs. And then we're going to put you all in small groups of maybe four to five people where you can discuss, debate, critique, role play, um, give each other feedback. And then maybe you come back into the main room and the instructor picks a couple examples to live critique. And you can all mm -hmm. talk through and learn from what everyone just did. And by doing that, you as a student get a much richer experience and much better outcomes because you are actively thinking about, about what you just learned and actively putting those things into practice. So it's a, it's a new form. Code-based courses are a new form of online learning that you know really combine the best parts of in-person learning with the best parts of online learning. You know, and a lot of people will say, well, Wes, like, aren't court-based courses just university courses or K through 12, like literally going to a classroom with 30 other students? And in some ways, yes, like that, that, you know, the best parts of in-person learning were interactive um, experiences with an instructor who really cared um, where you were, you were learning in a kinesthetic way, but it's taking that aspect and combining it with the best parts of online learning where there's accessibility, there's scale and there's convenience. So it's really merging those two things and um, offering a much more interactive, motivating experience uh, for the learner, bringing that all online. And that's on the learner side. And then on the creator side, the instructor, the instructor side, um, it's a much more um, lucrative experience many times than teaching a teachable course or, or you know, a Udemy course where you are charging 10 to $20 for a MOOC uh, content, you know, nowadays is not scarce. It's very abundant. If people aren't buying your course, there's a bunch of other, other evergreen courses out there, a bunch of free YouTube content, a bunch of your own articles, even that people can, can access. Um, and the scarce thing that people are willing to pay for is community. So mm -hmm. cohort based courses have community and that is what is scarce these days. If people just wanted to read a textbook or read a manual or, or, you know, follow step-by-step -step instructions, there's plenty of other places to do that. But there's actually not a lot of places to um, meet fellow designers, fellow product managers, fellow women in tech, uh, fellow crypto enthusiasts, and for a focused period of time, learn something together, build together, give each other feedback, um, and, and really learn together. So that community aspect um, is what allows creators to charge 10 to 50 times more for a core-based course. So on Maven, we're seeing courses go for anywhere between $500 per student to uh, $2,000 per student. And in other core-based courses, the Alt MBA, for example, which I co-founded with Seth Godin, we charge $4,500. David right. Perel, Rite of Passage, charges between four dollars to $6,000 per student. So the fact that you can charge so much more because students are excited about the community is great for uh, instructors who can now invest in a really high quality course and give 
that group of students a lot of value. Yeah. I mean, what's happened in pricing just with, you know, uh, digital products as a whole over the last uh, 10 years or so that I've been in the space, I think it's pretty fascinating of like, and just the move of, you know, it used to be you'd sell your ebook for $5 or maybe $9 if you were uh, getting a little crazy. Um, and then someone's like, oh, I'm going to charge a lot for this because this is a course. This is a video course. And so I'm going to charge $29 or $49, you know, or something like that. Uh, and it was fascinating because the content, you know, is on the level a lot of the time. There's a lot of people who are not putting in the quality of education design or whatever, right? So uh, we can't like blanket across for all courses, but a lot of people creating courses, you know, and selling them for say $99, we're putting in the level of quality for production and everything of like, um, you know, a university course or something like that. It was just missing the community and the feedback and everything that you're bringing on the cohort side. So I think it's amazing that, uh, you know, if we talk about Rite of Passage by David Perel, you know, it being in the three, four, $5,000 range, and, and someone might go like, that's insanely expensive. And then at the same time, if we're comparing it to, like, what's the cost per credit these days, <laughs> you know, for college? Like, it is wildly expensive. And I guarantee that uh, pretty much whatever school you go to, if you're taking a writing class there, it's not going to be as good as, like, rite of passage. You're getting, you know, the the best because you get to pick who you want across, you know, a whole it's like if you could pull the best teachers from a bunch of different universities instead of the one university that you ended up going to. Absolutely. And I think that the other thing is that a lot of the creators that you can learn from, the experts you can learn from for core-based courses are not teaching in universities. So even if even if, you know, you wanted to learn from someone like them, you know, in traditional higher ed, you couldn't find that. Um A because a lot of them are um operators themselves. Uh, or, you know, doing a bunch of other projects and, and don't want to teach full-time as a professor. They don't want to be in academia or because the topics are um, too cutting edge to be in college courses yet. So pomp, teaching a course on crypto. Colleges are still trying to catch up. You know, I don't know what the, the approval process is for getting a new course approved in, you know, at Harvard, but I'm sure it's it's a longer process than spinning up a course and being able to, you know, pomp being able to go directly to his audience. So Pomp has a Maven course where um, he has run a bunch of cohorts now and uh, is now on a, you know, every month or month and a half cadence of running his cohort. And a bunch of people have gotten jobs at crypto companies by taking his course uh, and have have gotten uh, a lot of a great foundation in in crypto from taking his course that they wouldn't have been able to find elsewhere. I think Sawhill Bloom is another great example. His audience building course teaches you how to grow your audience. And we've had multiple students reach out to us and tell us that they went from, you know, a thousand to 50,000 followers on Twitter in months after taking Saul Bloom's course. And any, everything that I know about Twitter, I learned from Saul Bloom too. <laughs> yeah. So I can attest. So he has a Maven course as well. And, um, and Saul not the kind of person that would want to teach in a university. You right. know, he has his investments. He has, you know, the, his, his podcast, he has his newsletter, he's tweeting, he has a bunch of stuff going on and has no interest teaching at a university. So if you want to learn from the best, from people who have proven, um, proven skills and have kind of, you know, shown their skills on the market, you can learn from people like Pomp, from people like Saul Bloom, from people like Lenny Rachitsky, for example, mm-hmm. who was an early uh, product manager at Airbnb, who now writes a Substack newsletter and has a Maven course. He has a course on product management. So, you know, you can learn from people like Lenny who grew up, you know, building amazing internet products and, 
building great software, you know, or you can learn from a professor who, you know, maybe was in industry 30 years ago and kind of has been in academia since. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, not great because there's, there's definitely a use case for that. But for a lot of working professionals, being able to take a three-week course, you know, two to four-week course um, and learn from someone who is in the field uh, and in the same industry more recently is really, really valuable. Yeah. What do you think from, I guess, talking from the creator's perspective, right? And so if we're analyzing their business and, um, you know, trying to optimize for their revenue, their quality of life as they're thinking about selling a course, what do you think on frequency of launching these courses? Um, some of them you see do this big launch once a year. I think Rite of Passage is twice a year. Um, and then, you know, on the other end, uh, someone might be running one continuously. Every single month, there's a new cohort, you know, or every six weeks. What do you recommend to creators? Um, and then what sort of questions would you ask them about their business and their goals to try to get to the right answer? I think the best thing about core-based courses as a creator is that you can mold them to fit your lifestyle and your business goals. So someone like Pomp wanted to have a core-based course be a big part of his business. And you know he had already built up Twitter following, uh, podcast following, newsletter following, and he wanted to be able to give back to his community and offer them something more than just content. And so for him, he wanted to, right off the bat, run something that would give people a lot of different options of, of different start dates where they weren't just waiting for twice a year, let's say, to be able to join. Um, and he has a small team to help him with that. So it made sense. And then you have other creators who are more solopreneurs. And you know they want to handle everything themselves, or they want to um, keep things kind of a bit simpler. And so they might want to only do two, three cohorts per year, and have more students in each, and kind of streamline streamline the operations there. Um, and so for that kind of creator, that format totally works. Um, and it's not necessarily that the more cohorts you run, the more revenue you make either. So you know it, it depends on a lot of different factors. Um, I have a, a canvas that I call the Course Mechanics Canvas that has 12 different levers. Uh, we can link to it um, in the show notes, but it's 12 different levers that you as a creator can think about to assess your own situation, to think about your own assets, levers, and constraints. So assets are anything that you have going for you. So a big audience that you can market to, uh, a strong network, former clients, paying customers, those are, those are all uh, assets. Um, existing content that you have, a book, uh, a MOOC, those are all assets that help you, uh, that make it easier for you to create a core-based course, uh, a team, right? Support. And then constraints are things that you are working within. So you might say that the constraint is, I don't want to hire other people. So this should be something that I can do by myself and keep it really simple, right? Like the, the company of one kind of philosophy. Um, great. So if you want to do that, there are certain price points you can offer, certain cohort frequencies. Uh, there are ways to structure a cohort where you don't need coaches, facilitators, mm -hmm. alumni, mentors. Um, and so looking through these 12 different levers helps you think about what is my situation and what are some examples of other creators who are in that situation that are running thriving courses. And there are different creators with all kinds of different setups. So I think that starting there helps you as a creator think about how do I want to structure this course? What makes sense for me? Yeah, because there's so many different things. Like I know some creators who love being like active on camera live, you know, engaging with people. And there's others who say, I, I want to do that a little bit. You know, I want mm -hmm, totally. the feedback 
you know, but I don't want to have a set schedule. You know, I don't, I'm worried about getting burned out. And so maybe what are some of the different uh, cadences that you see? Say if we're operating a three week course, you know, is it very video heavy, pre-recorded all of that with these office hours versus, uh, you know, you're pushing to have a lot more live and then uh, there's homework separate. What are some of those models? Yeah, I think when some people hear cohort-based course, they assume that it's the anti-video-driven course. It's the anti-MOOC. And that's not true. So even in the Maven Course Accelerator, the course that I teach, we have gradually moved towards turning some workshops into pre-recorded videos. And the reason we do that was I realized that there were certain workshops where I was monologuing for mm-hmm. you know five to seven minutes, teaching a certain topic. And it was content where it had to be knowledge transfer, right? It had to be setting a certain baseline of transferring knowledge before, before students could interact, do exercises, and have enough context to be able to, to do that. Um, and you know, if something is pure knowledge transfer, you might as well turn it into something that people can engage with on their own time. So you're not wasting precious real-time minutes together doing something that is passive. So that was one reason why we started to think, okay, how can we turn some of this into pre-recorded lectures? The other reason for doing that is because I was teaching Maven Course Accelerator, you know, coming on the, the fourth, fifth time. And for an instructor, you know, the first couple of times you're like, wow, like this is really exciting to talk about. And then as you go, you're kind of like, okay, like as we're increasing the cadence of teaching, part of me was like, oh, wow, like I feel like I just said this like a couple of weeks ago. And right. here I am like needing to bring the same level of energy. Like you're, you're explaining it for the first time, you know, cause, cause your students um, deserve that, right? Like I wanted to bring that same first time level of energy uh, when it was my 10th time explaining something and realize that, wow, like I'm not my best self if I'm not able to bring that energy. And so how can we turn some of this into pre-recorded videos so that, um, so that I can save that energy for interactions that are um, real time and, and make sense to do uh, you know, actively together when we're all in the same room uh, on Zoom. Um, and so, so we started turning some material into pre-recorded lectures and that gave me a lot more leverage and a mm-hmm. lot more uh, bandwidth to focus on activities, projects, discussion, Q&A, fireside chats. And so that's something that I think is, is definitely an option for a lot of course creators. We definitely have some course creators who say, I don't feel that comfortable in front of the camera. Like I can do it but I need to work myself up to it. You know, you have to like convince yourself, like get yourself amped up. It's not something that they would naturally do or get that much energy from. Um, And so for a lot of creators in that bucket, don't just write yourself off and say, oh, I guess I can't do a live course. You know, live does not mean every single thing has to be asynchronous. You can have pre-recorded materials where your students watch those things on their own time. And then when you're in person, there are um, group discussions and there's debate, and there's role-playing, and there's critique, and there's Q&A, and you can bring in other moderators and coaches who can help um, facilitate a lot of that, and then you might join for Q&As, let's say, or mm-hmm. you might um, introduce a certain topic and get people going, but you know, go off camera after that once you put people into groups. So there's a lot of flexibility with how you might want to structure something so that it works with your personality, with your strengths. Um, and you know, I've seen, I've seen creators who, you know, speaking of leaning into your strengths, I've seen creators who are great, uh, have great technical skills. So they like video editing or they like production animation. They're good with design and they make their stuff really high production value. And that's amazing. 
And I've seen people with no technical skills um, who hate messing around with, you know, how do I adjust this column width and how do I, you know, like figure out how to get the text to change color? Like, and, and they have thriving courses and they, their stuff is lower production value. And that's great because there are other things that their course offers that their um, student is not looking for production value for their course. So it's a lot about how you position your course, thinking about what your strengths are, uh, what are things that you don't like to do versus things that you do like to do. Um, and I guarantee no matter what your setup is, there are core-based course creators out there who are, who are similar and uh, have courses that are thriving. Yeah, there's so much in that just in the teaching style and everything else. Uh, and I think what I love most about the cohort-based course is that you can adapt it to your like personal model and you get to say um, like, okay, I'm going to be uh, on for this you know, period of time. And this is what gives me energy, right? Like a, a live Q and A gives me energy every time. I love it, you know, um, or whereas teaching the same material maybe doesn't. Um, and so you can find for you, you personally, what gives you energy, what doesn't, and then craft it of, of this is the live part. This is the pre-recorded. This is the coached, you know, by the TA equivalent, you know, and have all of that. Another thing that I want to ask about, you have this uh, blog post that I love called the state change method. And I'd love for you to talk about that, of how you think about, you know, teaching on video, uh, whether live or, or otherwise. Um, and what are some of the things you look for when you know, if I was telling you like, okay, Wes, tomorrow, well, let's give more time than that. So I've time to practice. Let's say in two weeks, I have to give this hour long presentation and I want everyone to be really engaged. Um, what are the things that you would like talk or coach someone through uh, to actually make that engaging, you know, over Zoom? I think most of us have experienced sitting through a long Zoom meeting or in an online lecture where it was really hard to stay focused. And to have your camera on, sitting super still, staring, you know, forward, looking at the screen, and hear, listening to someone monologue for for an hour, hour and a half. And so the state change method is a framework that I created that is the antidote to a monologue. So in a monologue, one person speaks forever, right? Just like it's just that person talking. On the other hand, with a state change method, you are punctuating every three to four to five minutes. You are adding a state change of some sort that jolts your audience awake. So that might be asking a question to the audience and having them put in their answer in the Zoom chat box or unmute an answer. It might be switching speakers. It might be going from gallery view into sharing slides or going from sharing slides back into gallery view so we can see each other's faces. Uh, it might be going into a breakout room or doing a, a guided exercise where Everyone stays in Zoom. We still see the grid, but we all silently work in place. Um, and then when we come back, might be a little bit more lecture and then sharing out. So the state change is, those are all examples of state changes. They're basically ways to um, snap your audience back into attention by offering a, a, a change in the rhythm, a change in the pacing. And it's a really great way when you are teaching something online or even hosting a meeting to uh, help keep your audience engaged. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about that of we've definitely all spent time and probably even delivered, you know, some of those monologue presentations that are like 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And then you get to the end, you're like, any, any questions? And you realize that everyone's not paying attention like 20 minutes ago, you know, and they're just there because they feel socially obligated to. And so thinking about it, uh, since reading your post, what I did, I'm trying to think when this was, maybe six months ago, just thinking about a presentation of I had my outline. 
in my keynote. And, you know, when I'm planning a presentation, I'm thinking uh, usually a minute per slide. That's just a, a general quick rule of thumb of if I'm wondering how long it is. A 25 slide thing is probably about 25 minutes for me. Um, and so I just counted every four to five slides like, OK, what's my state change going to be? And I wrote it into my notes and planned it out. And it made it so much easier because I went from being scared of, okay, how is this, how am I going to hold people's attention? How do I have the perfect story at the perfect time or whatever else to, I'm honestly, this is going to be a little bit of a hack. Like it's a cheat code. I'm just going to, you know, I have a list of possible state changes and I'm just going to put one in at each one of these places. And uh, it was really easy to go through and be like, oh, this is the perfect time to have this person share a story. Good. We have a different voice. That's a state change. Uh, and then, you know, this is the perfect time for a quick breakout. This is the perfect time for asking a question. So anyway, all, all that to say, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I love that example. That's amazing. I, I, I think the, yeah, the big part about the state change method with the every three to five minutes is that it just makes it really easy. You don't have to think about the perfect moment to add this or that. It's almost like, okay, well, it's been X number of minutes or X number of slides in your case, time to add a state change. And you'd be surprised by just purely thinking I should add a state change. There's usually an easy one that you can add, right? Like if you were to just, if you, if you were to think about it from scratch, you might think, you know, which ones do I add or how do I do it? But, but every three to four slides, you're like, oh, I need to add one. There's usually a natural place for it, you know? And, and it, a lot of times it's even um, changing something that was a statement into a question. So if you were going to mm. drop, you know, a, an amazing factoid, right? Or a, a statistic. You might ask people to guess instead, like guess how many hours of learning content people watch per day, right? So I might have said um, 50 million, I forget the actual number, but like 50 yeah. million hours or something. But instead of just saying that, I might say like, okay, everyone guess, right? Or I might do a poll. I might say, um, would you rather uh, do this or this, right? And then raise your hand if you'd rather do this, raise your hand if you'd rather do that. Okay, well, this proves my point that, next slide blank, you know? And so it's, it's this great way to challenge yourself to think about, you know, how can I make this more interactive? Yeah. I love it. Okay. Last thing I want to talk about is just sort of the switch that you've made from, uh, being a creator and focused on, you know, both your own ventures and then helping other people build them out, um, into like being an operator. And what were some of the challenging things in that? How's that shift been over the last couple of years of, you know, going all in into Maven? And then maybe this is too much of a leading question, but were there any habits that you had to like learn new or let go of old habits as you made that shift? Yeah, I would say that I consider myself an operator first and have been for most of my career. Mm -hmm. So actually being a creator was, was the, the shift. Part. It was the hard yeah. part. So yes. And I think now that I, you know, I was an operator, then became a creator, and then, you know, kind of back to being an operator, I think that the creativity and um, storytelling and sharing of being a content creator is something that I find hard to switch back and forth from when I'm in operator mode, when I'm solving problems that we're facing as business or, or like, you know, troubleshooting this or giving feedback to my team or, uh, or figuring out, you know, how we want to change an offer and structure an offer that we're giving creators. It's just a different headspace. And yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I have been grappling with. And I think my, my weekly threads have helped a lot in terms of creating 
creating a structured, contained, isolated kind of pocket for creative work where uh, a thread is pretty doable. It's based on, you know, some ideas that I've had before. And so it's, it's creative work that's not, um, that doesn't, you know, where the, the gas doesn't uh, expand to fill like, you know, the entire week or day or, you know, month, et cetera. And I think when I was a creator, it was, it was harder to, to kind of contain it. Like there, there'd be days or weeks where I was thinking about how to, how to write a certain article or how to, how to uh, explain a certain topic. And it would be pretty excruciating. Whereas now it's like, okay, I'm doing a thread a week. Um, and I'm using, you know, there, there's more constraints. I'm using articles that, that I've done before, um, and then reshaping them. And so it's a bit more contained. And I feel like that helps me stay close to the creative work, which I think is really important. Um, especially because we are uh, a creative economy company, you know, like people we yep. work with face these struggles, like they face these excruciating, you know, internal challenges of how do I explain this? Or like, how do I structure something, you know, and there are a thousand micro decisions that go into producing anything, whether it's a podcast episode, an, an article, you know, a Substack newsletter, you know, that you're sh- shipping every week. Um, and I feel like if you don't do some of that yourself, it's hard to relate to the thousand mm-hmm. micro decisions. You just see the end result and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, like, of course the thumbnail looks like that. And of course, like the show notes look like that. And right. And behind the scenes, that creator was looking at all different ways of, how to structure something, you know, should I put timestamps in the show notes? Is that worth doing or is it not? Um, even like preparing interview questions, figuring out when to move on from a certain topic versus not. Like these are all creative decisions that that creators make on a daily basis. And I like staying close to a little bit of that pain, a little bit of that struggle, because I yes. feel like it helps me better understand our uh, our audience and the, the customers that we're serving. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. Um, okay, what's the, as you're working on Growing Maven, what's the the biggest uh, bottleneck in the business right now? You know, where you're thinking like, oh, I have to get- Right now, yeah, yeah I, I'm answering before you even finish the question. Hiring, finding yeah. great people. So that is, I'm in full hiring mode now. Uh, before we were thinking a little bit more about product market fit and what offers do we give to certain creators? We're still figuring out some of that, but we have um, solid traction with instructors who, are, who have bitten you know, they've, we offered yep. certain things and they're biting, you know? Um, and now the constraint is, all right, we literally don't have enough brains on deck to fulfill the things that people are now wanting us to do. And so the problem has now shifted to um, how do I find great people who uh, are sharp operators, rigorous thinkers who want to build something big? Yes, that's right. So if you are a competent individual listening to this and knowing that competent that's is right. a high bar, <laughs> um, where should someone go oh, to, to see it. what roles are open right now? Maven.com has a career page. So it's our website. If you click on careers, you'll see a bunch of open roles on both the engineering and product side and on the business side. I love it. Um, okay. And then where else should people go to follow you and, and uh, anything else on the web? I'm at Wes underscore KO on Twitter. And then WesKO.com is my blog and newsletter. Sounds good. Wes, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Nathan. This is awesome.